Welcome to the Something About Science podcast. My name is Megan from Azo Nano, and I'm joined by Skylar from Azon and Danielle from News Medical. We'll be bringing you a roundup of the latest research that is piquing our interest on our set of specific sites. Try saying that one over and over again. In this episode, we'll be asking questions like Can sensors sniff coffee? Why did a Gloucestershire drive make it to headlines in 2021? And how can cancer cells squeeze through small spaces? So, the question I'm going to pose to you both today is can sensors sniff out good coffee? Who out there can't start their morning without a good cup of coffee? Even as a Brit, I must admit that my morning go-to has now become coffee. Sorry, Danielle, who is known to enjoy a nice cup of tea in the morning, I hear. And it looks like I'm not alone. As statistics estimate that 30 to 40% of the world's population consumes coffee every single day. And that by 2022, coffee was the 261st most traded product in the world. Which, you know, might not seem a lot that it's not in the top 10, but the market actually accounts for $11 billion worth of trade. So with any consumer good, there are rules and regulations that a product must satisfy before being fit for distribution and consumption. These are in place to protect those growing and selling the coffee, and also to protect us coffee lovers who love to drink it. But how exactly is coffee assessed? And what are industry professionals actually looking for when they're conducting these assessments? Well, here's where sensor technologies can come in handy. So back to my initial question, can sensors sniff out coffee? Well, in the future, they potentially could. Last year, a team of scientists in Barcelona published findings that discussed the efficacy of an e-nose, as in an electric nose, that could classify samples of coffee beans. In the research, samples were roasted at different intensities of heat treatment to produce a range of aromatic compounds, and then analysed with different methods including sensory analysis and volatile compound profiling. The team later determined that the enos could distinguish between samples that had undergone different thermal treatments, and following a testing panel splitting the beans into groups of whether they smelled good or not, the research team found that the enos could also distinguish between these groups, as in it could recognise the good smelling coffee from the bad. How nice coffee beans smell? that's its aroma, is a major component of determining the quality of the beans, both from a consumer content, from when we actually drink the cup of coffee, and a manufacturer's point of view. If scaled up, this Eno's approach could create a cheap, non-destructive quality analysis technique for the coffee industry, and it could also help to further enhance quality control practices in the future. What determines a good smelling coffee is what I want to know. How do you get onto a panel to decide what is a good smelling coffee? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I should <laughs> I need to look further into this, but do you think there's like professional... Well, you know, because they have... Is it a wine sommelier? tasters. Yeah, yeah, you have wine testers. I wonder if they have a coffee one as well. I bet they do. That'd be a great side hustle. It's like um, when people... There's a word for it. It's probably just something like perfumiers, but like when yeah. they yeah. Um, smell perfumes for a living and they like insure their noses and stuff. Real-time fact check. This just in from producer <laughs> Amy for our earpieces. Coffee tasting is called coffee cupping coffee cupping i can just hear the tongue twister come in like co- how many coffee cuppers can a coffee oh cup no cup? Stop. <laughs> or something like stop. that <laughs> i'm with danielle though i'm a tea person i'm a herbal tea person I coffee try, makes me go scatty yeah. these days i try and have herbal tea in the afternoon but i feel it like in the morning now i just i've grown to enjoy coffee it's a ritual yeah it is a ritual I feel like I just used to drink like six black cups a day and then That's just not a ritual. <laughs> die. <laughs> That's yeah. an addiction. Yeah. <laughs> there a line has to be drawn somewhere. I think I'll link to one of my pieces because you mentioned, 
I think one time the word electronics, which maybe links to mine vaguely. That'll be. I think that's the only link we're going to be able to <laughs> to get. But okay, so the first topic that I want to talk about is papertronics. So this was an interview I did before Christmas, but I haven't had a chance to talk about it yet on the podcast, and I wanted to. So just pretend that it's more recent than it is, please. But in this interview, I spoke with Professor Sukun Choi about his work that details the production of a prototype circuit board printed on paper. So he told me that the United States generated about 7 million tons of electronic waste in 2019, of which only 17% was recycled. So basically, he wanted to come up with a solution that can help decrease this problem of waste, especially when it comes to single-use electronics. So Professor Choi managed to create a prototype circuit board printed on a single sheet of paper. And this field of research is called papertronics, which I think is amazing. Paper actually has great mechanical and dielectric properties and chemical and thermal stability, which makes it a game-changing substrate for electronics. The metallic wires were attached to the paper with wax printing, paper ink injection, and screen printing. These papertronics can be used for disposable wireless sensor networks and in a range of different fields, and he called it the Internet of Disposable Things, rather than the traditional Internet of Things, the IoT. And he said that this IODT can give us a significant degree of intelligence and autonomy because of the rapid deployment of new applications and services at a much more affordable price point. And when it comes to the end of their life, these papertronic devices can be disposed of through incineration or biodegradation. And here's where the but comes in, because this is just a prototype and the purpose of this research was just to prove the viability of paper as a substrate. There's still elements in the prototype that aren't completely biodegradable at this time and incineration may still lead to some harmful byproducts. But the important thing here is that this is the first step towards a potentially fully circular and low cost electronic technology. And with materials innovation and further research, these limitations can definitely be overcome. But there are some also great photos of the printed circuit board in the interview. So I definitely recommend going and checking that out. But I just thought this was a really interesting and innovative step towards this idea of a circular economy, which I think is kind of becoming a lot more pervasive across all different industries at the moment. Is the field, this papertronics field, did it start with this paper? Or is it something that's kind of been like growing over time, do you know? So I think this is relatively new. I think this is the first, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I think this was the first case of a prototype of a circuit board printed on a single sheet of paper. And they have tested it with incinerating it as well. I think it took about 20 seconds to incinerate completely. Like I said, they've still got some work to go in terms of the materials that are used, but I think this was more of a test of whether it's possible and the methods in order to kind of attach onto the paper, um, which was successful. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I can imagine that the storage and sort of organisation of these circuits before they're eventually destroyed can be really easy. I can imagine just like a normal filing cabinet. I've been intrigued as well about the size that they could kind of get to, as well as like how small or how big. It'd be quite interesting because I think there is obviously this move to get down to kind of smaller electronics. But if we can kind of have a more sustainable approach to electronics or to rather to circuits, it'd be interesting to see whether we do continue to try and make things smaller or whether we actually stop and think, oh, OK, what's the, the balance here? Was it on an A4 piece of paper? I'm not sure about A4. It was quite small, mm. I think. I don't have like a photo of someone holding it up or anything, oh, but yeah, um, <laughs> I don't think it was large. I think it is quite quite small 
CRISPR, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, first hit the headlines in 2012 when scientists Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier and colleagues discovered CRISPR-Cas9 could be used as a tool for making targeted changes to the genome, a discovery that later earned the pair the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Since then, CRISPR has continued to make the news, both in a positive and negative light. The latest development in CRISPR's ever-evolving story has been detailed in Tandem Nature Papers, and I had the pleasure of interviewing one of the authors for an interview available on News Medical. In the interview, Assistant Professor Ryan Jackson from Utah State University discusses the discovery of a new CRISPR system, which they are calling Cas12A2, and how it differs from better-known CRISPR systems, such as CRISPR-Cas9. Unlike other CRISPR systems, Cas12A2 is able to shut down infected cells. The researchers also revealed that this new system targets RNA rather than DNA, which other CRISPR systems target. When CRISPR-12A2 binds RNA, it makes a conformational change, which allows it to bind and cut any sequence of RNA or DNA. This cutting destroys the viral genome as well as degrading the host genome, shutting down the infected cell before the virus can replicate. Brian and his colleagues hope this discovery will have therapeutic applications in diseases such as cancer, as well as diagnostic implications due to the RNA-induced activation of DNA cutting that can be leveraged to amplify RNA detection. I really enjoyed this interview, Danielle. Thank you. I enjoyed reading it. I remember, I'm sure Danielle can also attest to this, (laughs) the time spent studying the CRISPR systems and what they can do. And um, I think one thing here to kind of note is that With this system, it targets RNA instead of DNA. And the implication of this is that there's a lot of viruses that are actually, their genetic information is coded as RNA rather than the double-stranded DNA that we have. So things like HIV and coronavirus are both RNA viruses. And I believe I'm right in saying this, is that's what makes it this development quite interesting for infectious disease. Yeah, well, it opens up the possibilities to a whole new sort of section of life, that section of life that uses RNA to encode its genetic code rather than than DNA. And also, yeah, for diagnostic implications, because it targets RNA, that RNA can then be amplified via, you know, the PCR systems, which makes it easier to detect in a diagnostic setting. So that's really exciting. Hopefully that means the diagnosis of RNA infections, Mm -hmm. RNA-based viral infections can be sped up tenfold no definitely and I think one thing is that will continue happening hopefully in the future is kind of discovering these different CRISPR systems or even improvements on current CRISPR systems that we have because they're not perfect Mm. they're they're great but you know they're not as amazing as sometimes they're made out to be but it is discoveries like these that just do keep I suppose keep the field alive in in a way yeah and I think the thing for me that I thought when I read this initially and then conducted the interview was, is that these systems already exist in nature and it's solving our problems for us. So we've got a problem with, like we've seen during the COVID pandemic, RNA-based viral infections, but bacteria millions of years ago already figured out immune system to ward these infections off. And it's amazing that we can harness what's already there. You know, we don't need to come up with anything ourselves because nature's already found a way. It's the application the the application that it can make targeted changes that is so significant i think another kind of i suppose potential application of this is i thought when i saw that it was targeting rnas looking at it from a non-coding kind of perspective mm, yeah definitely um, because there's so much that we don't know about the non-coding genome and for um our listeners out there 
our genomes most of the time we think of it is coding as in it's DNA that codes for say like a protein for example but we actually have a proportion of it that's non-coding and that means it's not being translated from RNA which is single-stranded into DNA which is double-stranded and for a really really long time most scientists just thought it was junk mm. and that it wasn't worth anything when in actual fact there's so many interesting kind of things that it relates to whether kind of Things like microRNA, which help with regulating the production of genes, even from looking at it from how genes can kind of, I suppose, evolve from the non-coding genome as well. I'd be quite intrigued to see how it might contribute to that field of research as well. Real-time fact check. I'm just doing a bit of a fact check. I know, that's fine. <laughs> you said production of genes. Not production of genes, ignore me. Regulation yeah. of genes. Yeah, and there's two things called long non-coding RNAs and short non-coding RNAs, and they've had implications in, like Megan said, um, the control of transcription. So it'd be really interesting to be able to target those because they are RNAs and see what their potential influence is and whether targeting those and then making changes would have a change on uh, transcription levels. If there's one thing that I'm sure many of our listeners have heard over the past few years is that microplastics are everywhere. From the North and South Poles to the top of mountains and even evidence being found in the human placenta, it seems like nowhere can escape these tiny polymer particles. Now microplastics, which are categorised as being less than 5mm in length, are widely spoken about. But have you heard about their smaller counterparts, nanoplastics? Notice the difference. Nano which relates to their smaller size of being less than 100 nanometers. To visualize this, a strand of human DNA is 2.5 nanometers in diameter, and there are 25,400,000 nanometers in one inch. So pretty tiny stuff. Like microplastics, nanoplastics could pose a huge problem for both the environment and human health. The implications of nanoplastics in water are especially worrying, as there is a chance they could harm ecosystems, damage existing water treatment processes, and even make their way up to the food chain to the food that we eat. But there is hope. Researchers have been looking at a way for how nanomaterials could help to remove nanoplastics from water sources. Fighting nano with nano, or finding nano, if you will. <laughs> Very dry laughter. No one's interrupting. We did find it funny. Insert canned laughter here <laughs> from the beginning of the episode. So in a new article on Azo Nano, we talk about a couple of different methods that can be used to remove nanoplastics from water. But I thought I'd highlight one that comes from a new piece of research published in Nature Communications from researchers based at the Future Energy and Innovation Laboratory at Berna University of Technology. So... As discussed in the article, there are a couple of different ways to do this, but in this recent piece of research, it looked at how maxines, which are a 2D material typically consisting of thin layers of transition metal carbides, nitrides and carbonitrides, could be used to capture nanoplastics from water on the fly. As a proof of concept, this study could help to create a method of screening nanoplastics in water on site, without the need for expensive laboratory equipment or specially trained personnel. And I just thought that this piece was quite interesting because, well, first of all, it's using nanotechnologies to fight something at the nanoscale. We love the nano on nano. But I think for the fact that it could be done, say, on the fly or on site is also quite an interesting thing from both a testing and, I suppose, a removal point of view, especially because, you know, nanoplastics and microplastics have been found pretty much everywhere on the globe. If we can kind of develop ways to tackle this issue in water sources, at a very kind of cheap, low-cost way, it 
can help communities and you know whether it's small or large you know really kind of like tackle this problem without the need for like big equipment or big industrial plants and to like really solve it at the source. I think it's just really important as an awareness piece as well because I don't know about anyone else but I had never heard of of nanoplastics I mean I'd heard lots about microplastics but never nanoplastics and it it makes perfect sense that there would be smaller constituents of, of microplastics so I think it's just really important for awareness as well so it's really interesting. Is there any way to quantify the amount of nanoplastics? I mean, I guess we don't really have a complete grasp on microplastics, but is there any sort of estimates or is it kind of almost too small of a scale to really quantify? I'm not sure personally, but I'm sure that there is research out there that's Mm. trying to do that. I think if I was like kind of theorising methodology, one way would be to just do it by sample of say like get a look at one body of water and quantify how much in there and then work from the similar quadrat. Like a quadrat quadrat square, yeah. Yeah, And similarly do it that way. But I think, like Danielle said, it's just kind of like making sure that people are aware that, you know, we have microplastics, but there's something even smaller, which, you know, I think it's even scarier, I suppose, that nanoplastics are there. And it is nanoplastics that, say, have been found in, you know, in the placenta. And I think Mm. it's, you know, something that should receive a lot more attention. And ways to combat it should also receive, like, more, more attention. One of my friends is studying um, microplastic contamination and just the sheer amount of microplastics in the food that we eat, for example, is absolutely terrifying. And like you said, to imagine that there's something even smaller than that, like what proportion of what we're consuming, putting in our bodies is full of these things that we have no idea about. I suppose the smaller something gets, the harder it is to not only quantify it, but also do something about it. So it's amazing that using nano, that the researchers in the article in which you speak about are able to do that. Yeah, I think that's like why I think it kind of jumped out at me quite a lot because I don't think it had been picked up and I'm sure like someone will check this afterwards, but that's what really jumped out to me is that the fact it is using nano to fight nano, like power power, mm-hmm. kind of. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was just quite an interesting piece to bring to the table today. It's my space time of the episode. <laughs> it's uh, space time music. <laughs> I've decided I want to try and do at least one space story every single episode. It just happens to be like my most interesting or maybe what I think is the most interesting. So I'm going to talk about water and space in two different stories. One longer one and then just like a tiny bonus. So first up, I'm going to be talking about the Winchcombe meteorite. And this was an interview I also did a while ago. But I talked to Dr. Ashley King from the Natural History Museum about the meteorite that landed in Gloucestershire in 2021. And in order to explain the significance of the meteorite, you need to understand the big question we have about Earth's water, which is basically, where did it come from? Where did our oceans come from? It's been thought that water was delivered here by icy comets or asteroids for a while, but the water in the comets that we found so far hasn't been a very good match for our oceans. But in February 2021, a carbonaceous chondrite meteorite, which is basically a fragment of an asteroid that contains materials that dates the birth of our solar system 4.6 billion years ago, landed in England. (laughs) Yeah, a long time ago. (laughs) Just that alone was quite hard to get my head around. The fact that we have a sample of that material Mm. is insane. But maybe because it was locked down, maybe just anyway, the meteorite was spotted straight away and the first samples were collected only a few hours after it landed, which is important because these meteorites have landed on Earth before, but usually they get contaminated by the terrestrial environment pretty quickly. 
but this one because it was collected so quickly means that the samples that we get are a lot more reliable. And they found that in the meteorites, it contained around 11% water by weight and it's locked into minerals. And this was similar to the composition of our oceans. So this is a really significant finding, but it also contained extraterrestrial carbon, including amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins and life on earth, basically. And in Dr. King's words, he said that this means that not only could carbonaceous asteroids deliver water to the early earth, but they likely also played a role in bringing the ingredients needed for complex molecules to start forming, which is fascinating. This year, one of NASA's missions is going to bring back more samples from the asteroid Bennu, which is another carbonaceous asteroid. So with this and other mission samples, research is going to continue. And I just wanted to tell you guys about this because I thought it was mental and really cool. I'd love to know what you think. I think I've been living under a rock because I didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> I'd heard about the water part, but not the um, amino acid part. I yeah, they, heard about they can survive intact for billions of years in space. Amino, amino acids. acids. And then it poses the question, it's a very popular theory, whether amino acids and early life, early forms of life came from an asteroid. That theory's got a big following in terms mm -hmm. of like quite prominent scientists believe that uh, asteroid hit the Earth and gave, gave the Earth, but sort of passed. <laughs> here's my gift to here's you. Here's my gift to you, life. <laughs> I give you life. Um, so yeah, sort of transferred early prosaic forms of life from the asteroid to earth and that's how the earth was populated with life i mean uh, research like this and meteorites like this kind of adds to that theory mm. they definitely don't detract from it do you not think it's mental that like we only find this out when it falls to earth and that it's like um i suppose like spontaneous discoveries mm. i know science is spontaneous discoveries but you know what i mean it's kind of like it's interesting to think of how like we can't necessarily go out and find the information because our technology is not quite there yet but in the off chance that something does come down you know it, I just think it's quite fascinating turn of events um, but what is interesting about that and what I was thinking about as you were speaking then was the other latest NASA mission where they actually targeted you know if we were ever in a situation where our asteroid was going to hit Earth yeah. they, they targeted mm -hmm. it and the applications of what, what that could be if we could target asteroids that were passing by but that, but that wouldn't fall to Earth if we could target them it meant that fragments fell to Earth and we could investigate them for the presence of such compounds that would be really interesting Well this NASA mission to get more samples from that carbonaceous asteroid Bennu I think is kind of similar to what you're saying like going out and fetching the information which is a lot more difficult and expensive so there's definitely I agree with you that it's amazing that this kind of just fell into our laps quite literally I also think it's insane that it is something as simple as us seeing it in time yeah. determines whether or not we can get the information that we need from it yeah. did you say where it fell sorry yeah in Gloucestershire, um, Gloucestershire. in a driveway <laughs> oh, wow. I think I bet that was a surprise I for the uh, homeowner <laughs> it was in 2021 so everyone was at home when it fell <laughs> so I think there was just like an unprecedented amount of people kind of videoing it reporting it so people like researchers were able to get there a lot quicker to retrieve it which is maybe maybe one good thing out of the pandemic is we got a meteorite <laughs> anyway I'm gonna move quickly <laughs> on to my little snippet which is not gonna be as long a thing but I just it was a recent story that came up and we just did an article on it on Azo Quantum. And it's the fact that the Curiosity rover on Mars has discovered water-rich opals underneath the surface. So in subsurface fracture networks, these could have provided water-rich conditions and shielding from the harsh solar radiation on the Martian surface, which at the moment means that no life can survive there. But 
These opals were found in the Gale Crater, which is around the equator of Mars, and this is significant as previously water's only really been identified at the poles. Like, we know it's there, but this is a completely new region. Opal is mainly water and silica, so the discovery of this opal means that there might have once been enough water there to make these cracks habitable. And it also is important because it means that potential future Mars missions, or that Mars colony that I've referred to in like maybe two episodes <laughs> so far, they could possibly harvest water from these opals, which is quite significant for future missions, just in terms of resources and costs. Just a little tidbit I thought I would mention, because I think this is something that we're going to keep seeing. I read somewhere that the Mars rover is now heading up a mountain in the crater, so it's moving away from the, the opal. No! <laughs> but there's another rover that I think can continue the research on it. But I think the main thing about this was it was just so unexpected. One thing I always think is interesting with, I suppose, water-related discoveries on Mars is that it's so contrasting to like what we view Mars to be. It's this very, very dry, very, very dry planet that... I think even that they're finding things now that have like water content is just, you know, it's not as if it's in the past or there's traces of it. It's like, oh no, actually like it is present there. Mm. I just think it's quite a, quite a very interesting thing. It's evidence of such a rich history of the planet as well. This story is a good throwback to our first episode when I was talking about the Martian regolith for building on Mars and how, it, how expensive it is to bring any sort of payload from Earth up to orbit and how utilizing materials on planets makes missions infinitely more cost effective and easier so you know we've got potential building materials now we've got maybe water what's going to be next each episode is just going to be like a new resource component that sky's going to tick off the checklist to go to mars yeah <laughs> and like eventually we'll be all ready to go the martian colonization is upon us <laughs> <laughs> would you go if the technology was there, would you try it? No, but that's really? just because I watched Interstellar this week for the first time. I've never seen it. I've told it it made me cry, so I refuse to watch it. Well, um, the overarching theme I thought was that he shouldn't have gone. Apparently, that's wrong. <laughs> you can't interpret wrong. No, it's you can because, like, if he hadn't, then all of humanity would have been doomed. But I personally would not have done it. Melanoma, though less common, is a type of skin cancer that is more dangerous than the more common carcinomas. This is because melanoma spreads. It metastasizes around the body, which leads to the spread and growth of cancer in different organs. In order to leave the primary site and invade other tissues, melanoma cells must squeeze themselves through tight gaps in the tumor's environment. Researchers have questioned how exactly these cells are able to do so when they are restricted by large, stiff structures called the nucleus that stores the cell's genetic information. Well, researchers from various institutions, such as the Francis Crick Institute and Bart's Cancer Institute at the Queen Mary University of London, collaborated to try and find the answer to these questions of how these cancer cells squeeze through tight spaces. By looking at the differences between melanoma cells in the primary tumour versus patients' metastases, they found metastatic meloma cells expressed more of a protein called LAP1. This protein was found to localise in bulges in a nuclear envelope and allows the nucleus to change shape. This is a significant finding as the researchers have identified a potential therapeutic target for this dangerous type of cancer. By targeting LAP1, scientists may be able to prevent cancer cells from squeezing through gaps and metastasizing, which is really important for this deadly type of cancer. That is quite interesting. I'm not a cancer biologist, but I'd never thought 
really about the mechanics of it, of them actually having to squeeze through tiny gaps. And the fact that cancer cells, I mean, and cancer is an incredibly dangerous, deadly disease, but the cells, the ingenuity of the cells to be able to survive and spread in that way, it's quite remarkable that they're able to take a stiff structure and use the cell's own machinery mm. to make it squeeze through tiny gaps and spread. It's remarkable. Absolutely. And also, when you were talking in the first episode about those molecular mailmen mm. and stuff like that, obviously, I don't have a background in biomedicine or it's genetics that like you guys do. But that kind of stuff is fascinating to me because it seems sometimes to me as alien as the space stuff that I talk about, the idea that all of this is going on inside us. And like you said, the ingenuity of our bodies. And I guess that it's also kind of terrifying how that turns against us and you know how little we understand about the way that we function but also incredibly fascinating that something what seems so simple as you know just stopping them squeezing through a tight space is something that we've only just discovered but could be so revolutionary but we've just found out this thing about that happens inside of us I'm not making any sense but I think it's just incredible no I know what you mean I think even you know someone with familiarity with like the field it's like you say it's it's horrifying but it's remarkable the fact that they do it and I think we touched as well on this kind of like topic in the first episode of it's a very visual thing to think about. It's very easy to understand or rather it's very easy to visualize these like cells, I suppose, like squeezing through a tight space, you know, from kind of a communication perspective. I suppose it might help also like bring a bit more awareness to how these processes work. I suppose if ironically humanize them in a way for people to kind of understand because they can visualize it and they can kind of imagine the process of caring. There's something huge to be said there about science communication and just the way that research and findings communicated to an audience because I think I can't remember who I was talking to I was talking to a researcher at some point about the language used and how you can know absolutely everything about a subject but unless you're talking to someone else who is an absolute expert in your field, if you can't communicate that to anyone else, then it's so exclusionary and it's so non-collaborative to other disciplines. And I just think like examples like this, where you can take something immensely complicated and someone like me with no background to it can understand it. I think that's really valuable. And I think it's something that I always appreciate when I'm talking to a researcher or re reading a study, even if it's complicated, if, if it's just accessible as well. But yeah, just to... Thought. really good point I loved what you said about it was exclusionary like that makes perfect sense and a lot of advances in science come from interdisciplinary approaches so it's important that you know not only that the general public understand but also that researchers who aren't experts in that specific field also understand because they might be able to provide you know a really insightful take on the research that leads to something it really exciting a collaboration so that was really important what you said Oh, definitely. And I think that's a really good point you've made there, Danielle, about how it's, you know, not just about inclusivity between those who come from, say, like a knowledgeable and non-knowledgeable background, but also inviting people from other fields into it by just making your language more accessible. And, you know, we've all seen that, like, there are so many innovations and developments that come out that are multidisciplinary. And like even this one, for example, it's two different research institutes. If you don't foster those relationships, then you're not going to provide these opportunities, say, for innovation and for developments like this, you know, can make a real difference in many people's lives.
It's like that um, interview that I talked about maybe in episode two, where it's that interdisciplinary research on exoplanet atmospheres and how it's such a massive collaboration between physicists, chemists, earth scientists, and all of those coming from such niche specialized backgrounds are all having to learn and collaborate. And it's a great example of what we've been saying here about how language is so important to kind of foster collaborations like those that we find so exciting, but that wouldn't be possible otherwise. One thing that just popped into my head then, kind of um, thinking back to what you were talking about in this new research, is that by targeting the protein, it can basically prevent, I suppose, migration, would you say, is like the easiest way to say it? So do you think maybe this would be like, it would be used in combination with, say, radiation therapy or kind of like yeah, chemotherapy? Definitely, because the issue is it's that you've got the primary skin cancer at the primary site, so say on your arm. And then the cancer metastasizes and spreads to organs such as the liver, the mm-hmm, lungs, mm-hmm. the brain even. So yeah, that's what it would be. It would be a combination therapy in tandem with radiotherapy or mm-hmm. chemotherapy. And it would help prevent or treat the spread of cancer to those secondary sites. Yeah, because, you know, obviously a quite a common thing with cancer is that as it progresses through the stages, very sadly, the outlook doesn't become quite as as positive so even if it's you know being able to reduce that chance i think it's a really really interesting kind of um development thank you for sharing it's okay a piece of content that has been trending on news medical for the last few months has been an article entitled the male contraceptive pill is it possible the responsibility for contraception has generally fallen on women since the development of the birth control pills in the 1950s with the exception of vasectomy and male condoms. Interestingly, surveys have suggested that men would prefer greater control over contraception. However, every few years, as I'm sure you both will have seen, there are reports on male contraceptive pills being trialled, with not much follow-up coverage. So we wanted to ask, is it possible, and detail the current scientific understanding of the male contraceptive pill? The article details a study that trialled an androgen inhibitor and progestin administration in the form of a monthly injectable subdermal implant and combined transdermal gel and pill, each of which demonstrated good efficiency in reducing sperm. Based on a number of pregnancies throughout the study period, this form of contraception was of comparable efficiency to the female contraceptive pill. Equally, non-hormonal routes are also being investigated, such as targeting of Sertoli or Leydig cells or attaching molecules to the outer surface of sperm, reducing their viability. In a TED talk entitled How a Male Contraceptive Pill Could Work, andrologist John Amory says, The researchers who are working on male contraception are trying to create a better future for couples. A future where contraception is no longer just considered a woman's issue, rather an issue for couples to decide together. Several promising clinical studies are underway that exploit various hormonal and non-hormonal mechanisms, so watch this space for potential updates to this article as the science progresses. I have so many things to say about the male contraceptive pill. <laughs> oh no. I don't know if all of them are going to make the episode, but one thing I will say is that what annoys me, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't do this, is that every single time that a male contraceptive pill comes out or is trialed or they're like, this could work, there'll be a percentage of a chance that there could be a complication for it. And as a result, it won't get any backing and it will never go anywhere. And you know, there's this big outcry for it. Meanwhile, when I fold out like a female contraception pill, it's like you could like wrap yourself in the in the warning sheet on it. The amount of things women are just expected to just take the pill. 
I like in the article, some of the side effects are detailed and they're just remarkably similar to the female side effects. So yeah, it is interesting that sort of difference between the sexes in terms of the response to um, potential side effects. First of all, I'm glad to hear that this has had attention. Like I think the more awareness, the better, I suppose, to that thing. And I think, you know, one of the positive things about this is that, of course, it's not only removing the responsibility from women, but it's also giving men more autonomy on their kind of contraception and their contraception choices because the more options the better really I suppose you could kind of say but hopefully it'll just kind of go through I didn't realize there wasn't there was still kind of reaching trial and then not quite getting through because you do it's like Skylar said you kind of like pop up throughout the news and that sort of thing and then you never really hear anything do you Mm. other than it kind of popping up Um, So hopefully that will actually be a proper development that will be available. Just all about sharing that responsibility. I don't think it's about removing it from women and putting it onto men. It's just about like the quote from the um, TED Talk. It's about making it a couple's decision and making that decision together. One question I'll ask is, do you know, like say how the traction is going in this space? Like, is it been recently picking up or is it more kind of, it's been steadily plodding along for the past kind of few I'd say it's definitely been sort of like slowly plodding on. I said with with recent research advances, such as them noting that the inhibition of vitamin A production affects the production of sperm. So there's been a bit of traction with that. But like we've said, once it goes to that trial stage, there's not much after that, which is incredibly frustrating because the results are there. It's just that next research step isn't being taken. I suppose that's quite a big barrier for a lot of treatments is reaching clinical trials and not quite being able to progress to the next stage. It's a complex issue, but one of the elements is funding, where that funding comes from, general public interest. That's the great thing about this piece is that, like you said, it has had a lot of traction and a lot of page views so that people are interested and people are interested if it is actually possible, you know, is the science there? And we're showing the science is there, but, you know, there's still a way to go. At the end of the day as well, it is optional, I think it becomes such a big hot topic of debate about like whether it should be a woman's issue or a men's issue, but just like having that option there so that it's not saying that it becomes the responsibility of any one party. It's just, like you said before, it's an issue for couples. And I think just having that option, I don't really see how that is a point of debate personally. Well, I agree. If you enjoyed listening, please think about leaving a review on your podcast provider sharing this episode on social media or with friends, family and colleagues you think might enjoy it as well. This episode was brought to you by Azo Network. We'll be back soon with more discussions about science.